All right, let's bards. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this tremendous opportunity, this privilege even, to gather together as family in the unity of the faith, Father. Thank you so much for the blessings you show us each and every day. Thank you for our health, whatever you've given us. Thank you um, so much for the faith, for the measure of faith that you've apportioned to each one of us in time as well, for these are the ways that we are able to reveal your grace and love and mercy to a world that seems to be increasingly distant from you, from your Son. Father, thank you for the completed canon. Thank you for always giving us straight talk. and Thank you for affording us the Spirit to convict us. But we don't want it to be the words of man. We want it to be the very voice of God that teaches us. Thank you for a morning like this where these things occur. We pray especially for those in the congregation that earnestly desire to be here but cannot be for illness reasons or whatever. And we pray especially also for those still lost in this world that they might find your son and be saved so that we might have additional brothers and sisters in Christ for all of eternity in heaven. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross whom you sent personally to die in our stead, to take our place, so that even a morning like this one and all the rejoicing that will occur is possible. Father, we just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, fantastic series. We're on a couple of additions along the way that uh, the Spirit has certainly weaved into this morning's message. Why the Apostles so encouraging. This is a, an overarching theme that we've been on for a while. Uh, this particular uh, addition to it, by grace they were prepared, is quite lengthy, which makes sense because by grace we are all prepared. And so there's an awful lot of relating to the Apostles um, that can be done, frankly. Um, and so it's been a fantastic journey. Uh, hopefully you're continuing on, you're staying faithful when you're missing lessons, etc. With that said, here's how we started on Thursday up here on the board. On the topic of faith, remember in our list of things that the apostles lacked, uh, the last one we looked at was faith. It was understanding, then humility, then faith, and we're moving on to commitment this morning. But faith has been sort of front and center for quite a few lessons. And so one of the capstones that the Spirit gave us uh, this past couple of weeks was this, that faith is among the greatest treasures we seek. We talk an awful lot about treasure. We had a couple of um, lessons on something earthly, financial treasures, that put our perspective straight. But if we're going to talk about treasures, um, we should talk about faith, because faith is among the greatest treasures we seek. It is the very substance of our wisdom. While knowledge may be the basis, faith is the substance of wisdom. For without godly wisdom, there is no real understanding. I've known a lot of wise individuals. I used to be in business for 20 years. 
engineering, the whole nine yards. And I knew a lot of wise people, but the vast majority of them were ungodly. They were wise to the ways of the world. They could make a buck. Some of them were either, well, I know a couple of them were billionaires, but many of them were worth 50 million, 100 million. Yeah, they were wise individuals by the ways of the world, but they were ungodly. They were unbelievers. And what good is that? At the end of the day, when Jesus Christ said, buy from me gold refined by fire, there have been a lot of intelligent people in this world that have tremendous knowledge even of Holy Scripture. Now this, I need you to listen up. There's a lot of intelligent people in this world that have tremendous knowledge of Holy Scripture, yet many of them are either in the lake of fire or destined for it. Our primary example, of course, is the serpent of old who tempted both the woman in the garden and then later on the Messiah himself in the wilderness. Remember, in both cases, Satan actually used what we now have recorded as Holy Scripture to tempt the objects of his evil. Just think about that. Satan knows more Scripture than anybody in here, all of us combined. But yet he's ungodly. He actually used it to try to trip up our Messiah. What the Spirit's doing here, first thing this morning, is making the all-important distinction between knowledge and wisdom, because there is a difference between knowing some scripture and actually knowing it, possessing it. The Greek word is lumbano, to possess it, to own it, so that it actually has or results in faith, faith being the substance of wisdom. Because without that true faith that's a gift from God, you don't have any real wisdom. So again, what the Spirit's doing here is making the all-important distinction between knowledge and wisdom. But even more deeply, he's making the connection between faith and true understanding. Go to Proverbs 4, 5. Proverbs 4, verse 5. So these are deeply rooted issues. These are important issues for all of us to contemplate. Because even as believers, we can have knowledge of something, but not wisdom. And in the absence of the wisdom, we have to understand that there must be a certain aspect or a measure of faith that we haven't received yet. So Proverbs 4.5 is a good place to start this discussion this morning. We've seen it in the past. Proverbs 4.5 says, acquire wisdom. This should be your motivation in life, honestly. If you're a believer... You should be after wisdom. You should want wisdom. And if you don't have it, pray on it. Ask for it. Go after it. Read your Bibles. Listen to your under-shepherd. Think about the things or the grace gifts that God's given you in time so that he can impart wisdom to your soul. So the first thing right out of the gate, acquire wisdom. Acquire understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, and she will guard you. This is wisdom. Her is wisdom. Do not forsake her, and she will guard you. Love her, and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is, guess what? Acquire it. <laughs> In other words, it's wise to acquire wisdom. 
and it's wiser even to keep on acquiring it. So the very beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom. And with all you're acquiring, get understanding. Up here in the board, on that topic of gaining wisdom, the first step in gaining wisdom is motivation. Acquire wisdom. That should be your motivation. Not wisdom from the world. It's, it's amazing to me the amount of self-help books that are read by Christians. But they don't pick up their Bible. They'll take wisdom from the world on how to make their more money or more whatever, make themselves happier, which is garbage, or you know, clean up their marriage or this or that or the other. They'll read self-help books from idiots like Dr. Phil, or even worse, Oprah, who, by the way, launched Dr. Phil. They'll pay attention to these morons and say, oh, she's just so wise. She denounces Jesus Christ publicly. That makes her an idiot. Destined for the lake of fire. What kind of wisdom is that? How smart can you be when you give up your entire soul for eternity in the lake of fire? I'm going to go out on a limb and say you're an idiot. I'm going to say that life is but a drop in the bucket compared to all of eternity. And that makes you an idiot. If you're willing to exchange some kind of credibility in life for all of eternity... I don't care what you know or how much money or how much influence you have in this world, you're an idiot. Because that's the greatest disparity you could possibly ever dream up in life, in time. And yet so many people go to people like that. And I'm not picking on Oprah, she's just a symptom. Your first motivation, your first step in gaining wisdom is motivation. Seek diligently and you shall find. That's a promise in the Word of God. When you possess it, you are granted understanding. It is then that you are able to discern. Discernment? Mm, sweet. Being able to discern between good and evil. Because as I've taught in the past, what's good for some, one person might be evil for the other. And vice versa. One person may have a capacity for a certain blessing, and the other one doesn't. So if this person receives it properly, they're blessed out. It's good. If this, if this person chases after it and grabs it from the world somehow, or somehow wrangles it and chokes it out, it's no good for them. Same so-called blessing, but different circumstances, different context. You have to be able to discern between good and evil. For some people, something as fundamental to life itself, like money, is good because they need it in a certain circumstances or God gives it to them and they're able to help others out. I don't know. But for that person, it's good. For another person without capacity for it, it's horrible. It's a nightmare. So once you have understanding from wisdom, it's then that you are able to discern between good and evil context changes in your own life. In other words, being able to look back in your own history and say, you know what, that was good for me, but it's not good for me now. Or it was no good for me then, but it's good for me now. Context changes, even gradations. Even gradations. Um, not that this matters, but there's an old guy called 
he's dead now, but Harvey Penick, he was an old professional golf coach, and he wrote a little book called The Little Red Book. And he used to help golfers like Ben Crenshaw, some of you older folks know him. And uh, he had a saying, he said, listen, if I give you an aspirin, in other words, if I tweak your swing a little bit, or I tell, you know, don't take the whole bottle. If I give you an aspirin, take the aspirin, not the whole bottle, because that's what most people do. Hey, I took an aspirin, I feel better. Now, I have, now I'm sick. That's what we do. So there's gradations even. God may say to you, hey, listen, I'm going to give you so much of this thing, but stop. Enough. Nope, we're gluttons, especially Americans. We do everything to the nines, and we make ourselves sick. So discernment is actually knowing gradations even. This is all part of wisdom. So as we begin with this morning, faith is among the greatest treasures we seek. This is why Solomon asked for it first. Go to 2 Chronicles 1, 6. 2 Chronicles 1, verse 6. You really want wisdom, my friends. Not just knowledge. Which is why you can't just come to church on a Sunday morning, pick up some, you know, a couple of giggles and some scripture and maybe, you know, some borrowed wisdom from, from the guy behind the pulpit or something like that. You can't just do that and then turn right back to your old life when you leave here. You have to take all this with you. You have to live. You have to abide in the living Word of God because that's what it's meant to do. It's supposed to live and breathe in your life. 2 Corinthians 1.6 Too many people put it on a shelf and it collects dust until next Sunday. 2 Corinthians 1.6 Solomon went up there before the Lord to the bronze altar which was at the tent of meeting and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. In that night God appeared to Solomon and said to him Ask what I shall give you. Solomon said to God, You have dealt with my father David with great loving kindness and have made me king in his place. Now, O Lord God, your promise to my father David is fulfilled. For you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Look what he asked for. Give me now wisdom and knowledge. Give me now wisdom and knowledge. Now, how many people in here, if God said, Ask whatever you want, I'll give it to you. How many would say wisdom? I'm going to say, just on averages, some would be like, I definitely want a new car. <laughs> and in that car, in the glove box, is going to be like this huge gift certificate to like Capitol Grill. And of course, you know, a year's supply of Starbucks and all this stuff. But Solomon didn't ask for that. Why? What's the first motivation? Acquire wisdom. Perfect example. Give me now wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people. Why? He obviously had a servant's heart because with great power comes great responsibility and he was a king and he just wanted to be a good ruler. He wanted to represent the Lord well like his father who God proffered as a man after his own heart. For who can rule this great people of yours? God said to Solomon, Because you had this in mind and did not ask for riches, wealth, or honor, or the life of those who hate you, 
Nor have you asked for a long life, but you have asked for yourself wisdom and knowledge that you may rule my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge have been granted to you. And, this is what I love about this particular account, and I will give you riches and wealth and honor, such as none of the kings who were before you has possessed, nor those who will come after you. That's a good lesson. I could probably teach a long series on that as well. The idea of capacity. He says, I'm going to give you the wisdom. And with wisdom comes capacity, knowing things like we talked about. Uh, discerning, the ability to discern. He says, then I'm going to give you a lot of riches and wealth and honor. And then, of course, he asks them to write about it later. Now, just for the record, how wise was Solomon? Go to 1 Kings 4.29. 1 Kings 4.29. You might say, well, how wise was Solomon? First Kings 4, 29. Again, we're still posturing on that thought. Acquire wisdom. That's our ultimate motivation. First Kings 4, 29. Now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand that is on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east in all the wisdom of Egypt. In other words, he was wiser, obviously, than anyone. For he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezraite, Amon, Calchal, and Darda, the sons of Mahal, and his fame was known in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop that grows on the wall, he spoke also of animals and birds and creeping things and fish. Men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. So there's your answer. How wise was Solomon? Wiser than anyone else in his time. So wise, obviously, we have scripture um, penned by him or at least accounted to his name. Again, up here on the board, gaining wisdom the first step in gaining wisdom is motivation. Seek diligently and you shall find. What did Solomon do? He said, God, if you're going to give me anything, give me wisdom. He embodied the idea of acquiring wisdom. Seek diligently and you shall find. When you possess it, you are granted understanding. It is then that you are able to discern between good and evil. Context changes, gradations, etc., etc. Maybe you're not a king like Solomon. But you have your own life, which in many ways is a microcosm of the same thing. You have, what, good and evil in your life? You have to discern what they are. You have to discern context changes. What was good for you yesterday may not be good for you today, etc. Gradations, how much of a good thing is a good thing? These kinds of things. You have your own life to live. Imagine piling all that on uh, and then have the responsibility of being a king over God's chosen people nonetheless. There's not a soul hearing my voice that knows more scripture than Satan. So back to our little dialogue here. There's not a soul hearing my voice that knows more scripture than Satan. 
it's fair to say that Satan knows more Scripture than even King Solomon did. Yet it's abundantly apparent that Satan lacks faith in God and therefore wisdom. So Satan might know more Scripture. You might have someone in your life even that knows more Scripture than you, but they have very little or no faith at all. I know some unbelievers that have enough Scripture to be dangerous, yet they're unsaved. They lack wisdom. If the greatest faith one can ever possess is saving faith, which is true, then every believer hearing my voice right now is wiser than Satan and the fallen angels. So while he may know more Scripture than you, you're wiser than him. Why? Because you possess saving faith. So I asked the rhetorical question on Thursday up here on the board. What good is something edible if we don't have the stomach to digest it? If you're just going to throw it up. In other words, what good is even reading your Bible if there's no faith that follows? If you're not interested? If you're just looking for, like so many Christians do, loopholes, or they're trying to hedge a bet, like the rich young ruler, how do I gain eternal life? Well, start with your attitude. You've got to give up your self-life. Uh-uh. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sift through this thing, and I'm going to look for loopholes. I'm going to act just like a what? An attorney. You know what uh, Satan translates into? Accuser slash attorney. That's satanic. If you go through your Bible or even come to Bible class looking for some way to satisfy your own desires, you're missing the point altogether. You might as well not even come. I'm not saying you have an earnest desire put there by God to learn truth, to acquire wisdom, possibly even be saved. I'm not talking about that. You know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about coming to class and looking for little loopholes to justify your ridiculous life. God forbid you come to this, this church. You're going to find very little loopholes. If anything, he's always slamming doors on those things. So what good is something edible if we don't have the stomach to digest it? Up here on the board, without faith it is impossible to please God. In other words, what good is even knowing Scripture if it never results in faith because you're arrogant? Because you don't have the humility to receive it. Because if you don't have faith, you can't please God. I didn't say that. That's Hebrews 11.6. You can have knowledge, but if you don't have faith that follows along, you can't please God. So the balance statement we were given on this, for those of you who earnestly are seeking faith up here on the board, thank God he's patient. We use our own lenses to pressure ourselves. Some of you might say, oh man, you know, without faith it's impossible to please God. Well, I have so little. I'm just going to throw in the towel. Well, that's a mistake. Take it easy. This is the balance statement. The Lord is patient. Way more patient than even you are on yourself. Certainly more patient than we are with others. I always find that funny, too. It's like God's like super patient with us, and then we're like, ah, blah, 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 blah. the next person's like making a small little mistake. Judge, 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 judge. I just go out and I sip my coffee on my, on my porch, and as they go by, <laughs> judgment. 
judgment. I saw you last night. Shame on you. What time did you get home last night? Shame on you. You say the prayer like the Pharisee, right? Thank God I'm not like that person. (laughs) God's like, you're worse. You're a judgmental jackass. So you have to also, as a balance statement, take it easy on yourself. Yes, without faith it's impossible to please God. That's what Scripture tells us. But take it easy on yourself. If you're just starting out, relax. Relax. Let Him do a good work in you. That's what the Bible says. It's His job. You're not going to get faith unless He gives it to you. You just focus on remaining humble, keep learning the Word of God, doing whatever He wants you to do, and He'll take care of the rest. That doesn't mean become lazy. Some of you are like, yeah, I like that. I like the balance statement because I'm just going to let go and let God. I'm just going to roll over in my bed and He's going to, by osmosis, send the Scripture through the pillow into my brain. That's not it either. But we don't want to use our own fleshly lenses to pressure ourselves. We're awful on ourselves. That is fleshly thinking. The Bible tells us to live one day at a time. Up here on the board, Matthew 6.34. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Amen? All right. You know what? Here's the one truth about tomorrow, right? I can say this about everybody's tomorrow. It doesn't exist yet. So why do you worry about stuff that doesn't even exist yet? It doesn't exist, does it? No. So what are you worried about something that, let's face it, 90-something percent of the time never even happens? In other words, learn to take whatever faith you do have and apply it to the life that you have been given, as opposed to, say, your neighbors. Take whatever faith you do have And learn to apply it to the life that you have been given, not your neighbor's. In other words, oh, I don't measure up to this person or I'm better than that person. That's a mistake. Don't look to your left and to your right like ever. That's between them and the Lord. If you're going to do anything aggressively to increase your faith, you ready? Pray for it. Don't manufacture it. Don't go home and start memorizing Proverbs and go, well, the smart man does this or whatever pray on it say Lord how about this how about what the apostles said we're talking about the apostles and we want to be encouraged by them what did the apostles say increase our faith (laughs) wisdom says I don't have it certainly not all of it so where are you going to go for this faith the one thing that's pleasing to God to God the giver of it some of you are like, pray? Maybe I'll do that on Easter or Christmas. Oh, well, you know, when you know, crisis hits. I love that one, too. People are always like, Lord, get me out of this jam. Nothing wrong with that necessarily. He might deliver you. He might leave you there. But if that's the only time you come to the Lord, something's missing. Something's wrong with your attitude. You're not actually looking for a relationship with the Lord. You just want to be a user, an abuser, up here on the board. The beginning of wisdom is what? Acquire wisdom. That's Proverbs 7. And with all you're acquiring, get understanding. This is what he's been saying. Now there's some wisdom for you. 
Pray, pray, pray. You want wisdom? Pray for it, like the apostles did. Increase our faith, but don't just take my word for it. Go to James 1, 2. James 1, verse 2. I don't want you to take my word for it. I'm just, remember, I'm just a, I was going to say glorified, not even that. I'm just a waiter. I'm just a waiter. That's all I am. I deliver up meals. I didn't cook them. I didn't make them. I just deliver them up. I just don't want to drop them. You know. James 1, 2. What does he say? Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and mature, in other words, and complete, lacking in nothing. You ready? But if any of you lacks wisdom, what do we do? Go to the bookstore? Ask Oprah? Dr. Phil? No, ask God. Who, what is going on with people? Christians. What are you doing? Seriously, who's the first person you turn to? Your unbelieving spouse? Oh, oh. Now that's off limits, mister. No, it's not. Who are you turning to? Somebody who doesn't care in the least about the Lord? Seriously, you're going to ask that person for wisdom? You're suffering and you're going to go to somebody who's suffering possibly worse than you and will in the future, definitely, if you're a believer? Eee, that's not wisdom at all. That's very bad counsel. What happens to the person who follows the blind person? They both fall into the pit. Does that sound familiar? I think that's in the Bible, right, DJ? That's in the Bible, I think, right? I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm reading a different Bible. I don't know. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. In other words, pray. Pray. Who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Being a double-minded, we studied that, uh, dipsukos, double-souled, man unstable in all his ways. In other words, if you're going to go to him in prayer, go to him earnestly in prayer. Don't throw it up, you know, cast it up like you're um, casting a net. Well, I'm going to go to Oprah and God. I'm going to hedge bets. I think if I just cover all my bases, someone will deliver. Well, that's an insult to God. And that's what a lot of people do. They're like, oh, man, life's getting tough. Tried everything. I think I'm going to start going to church again because life's getting a little tough, so I think I'm going to start hedging more bets. I need to spread out my time a little bit, right? Because I need to do a little bit of this and a little bit. And maybe one of these four or five things in my life that I've now, you know, got up like juggling in the air will pay off. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that's not earnestly seeking God. That's called human rationalism. That's what the flesh does looks for anything that might be advantageous in any way, and greedily grabs for it. Without any desire or regard whatsoever to the giver. And there's only one that matters. 
That's a double-minded person. Synthesize James' words with what's up here on the board. I'll give you the amplified classic of that recurring verse this morning. Proverbs 4, 7. The beginning of wisdom is get wisdom, skillful and godly wisdom. For skillful and godly wisdom is the principal thing. And with all you have gotten, get understanding or discernment, comprehension, and interpretation. Yes, that's right. Your life requires interpretation even. Your life requires interpretation. When we synthesize these two passages, among hundreds of others, I could have chosen otherwise, we rightly conclude this, that we're to pray for faith. Yeah. If you lack a portion of something good, then ask God for more. It's that simple. Don't be hedging bets. But if you lack a portion of something good, then ask God for more. But remember, you must ask with proper conviction, beginning with a desire to possess that which is pleasing to God. In other words, if you want wisdom, then you've got to have faith that precedes it, because that's what's pleasing to God. That's the right motivation. On Thursday, the Spirit amplified this attitude through the account of Job. Recall that the overarching theme of the entire book of Job is Satan's accusation. If you read chapters 1 and 2, that's the opening scene. Satan accuses, uh, or, uh, accuses Job of having a weak or insufficient faith, which is insulting to God because God's the one who gave him that faith. God's the one who said he's blameless and upright. Go ahead, have at it. That's the theme, that Job's faith would fail under pressure. Somewhere midstream in the book, Job asks the same question we've been asking. Go to uh, Job. Actually, I'll give it to you. Don't worry about it. Job 28, 12, he says, But where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? And the answer was, in verse 28 of Job 28, and to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. If you don't have enough respect for the Lord, you may not even go to Him when you're supposed to go to Him, which is always. You may not go to Him. You may be a dipsukos, a double-minded individual, because you don't have enough respect or fear for the Lord. That's your first, I mean, how, if you don't have enough respect or fear for the Lord, what kind of wisdom are you even starting off with? So this takes us back to our primary course of study, where we just ended the topic of faith and have transitioned to commitment. Again, all that was pretty much review from this past week. This has been our working framework for a long time now. What the apostles lacked, that's right, they lacked things. They, we learned early on that they were obviously very imperfect individuals, individuals that really were dubbed uneducated. So it's not like they were like, you know, PhDs and this and that and the other. They were regular folk, fishermen, etc. And uh, they lacked certain things. They were saved, but they lacked things after salvation, like understanding, humility, faith, commitment is where we're at and then ultimately we'll get to power. One interesting little development looking at our study outline, I gave you this on Thursday, up here on the board. Remember, it's understanding, humility, faith, commitment, power. There's a string of pearls here, whether you've noticed it or not. I'll help you. 
If you lack understanding, you lack humility. If you lack humility, you lack faith. If you lack faith, you lack commitment. If you lack commitment, you lack power. If you lack power, you lack the ability to do anything pleasing to God. That's our outline. Up here on the board. James 1.22 in the Amplified Classic, but prove yourselves doers of the word, actively and continually obeying God's precepts, and not merely listeners who hear the word but fail to internalize its meaning, deluding yourselves by unsound reasoning contrary to the truth. Well, that's wisdom then. If you're a wise person, you do the precepts of God. If you're a wise person, you know it's the right thing to do. You know that all his promises of blessing are a result of living that life that God has set before you. That's true wisdom, starting with salvation. And then on. As a lead-in to the topic of commitment, the Spirit gave us some food for thought and an abundance of Scripture up here on the board. We didn't jump in, in other words, right to the apostles. The Spirit wanted us to consider the doctrine, if you would, or at least certain aspects of commitment as they appear in the Bible. Up here on the board, on this topic of commitment, Satan has done a great job at destroying this concept in humanity in general. I mean, come on, look around, people. Does it take that long to realize that no one, people can't even spell commitment? I'm not being a wise guy. If you can't spell it, well, I'm uh, sorry. But I'm talking about, there's no, commitment has been completely almost abolished as a concept. The only thing people are committed to is themselves. If it's good for me, I'll do it. I might put on a show and say, oh, look at me, I'm working the soup kitchen, but really it was for you because you blow a trumpet as soon as you get out. Look at me, I went to the soup kitchen today. Right? And you go up and down, or you're out front and the poor people are starving, but you're, you know, making a scene. You know. Then at the very end, like, oh man, I didn't do anything, so you take a little soup and you splash yourself with it. I worked so hard, honey. I worked a hard, hard day at the soup kitchen today. Satan's done a great job. Commitment, almost a swear word. It's almost a joke. People make vows all the time that are vapid, void of integrity. Read my options blog. Reference Numbers 3, uh, 32, uh, 2, Psalm 37, 5, Proverbs 16, 3, 1 Kings 8, 61, Jonah 2, 9, Ecclesiastes 5, 4, Luke 9, 62, James 5, 12, Matthew 5, 32, for example. For example, so we know this is not a novel concept, in other words. Man is fleshly, selfish, self-centered, kind of hard to be committed to others, starting with the Lord, if you're selfish by nature. So suffice to say that the Lord desires each of us to be men and women of our word. Again, your promises, in other words, your promises and vows ought to mean something. That means something to the Lord. That's what the Word tells us. Your Word should mean something. It shouldn't ever be, you know, laced with some undercurrent or <clears throat> some fleshly ulterior motive. 
that's being dishonest. Your promises and vows ought to mean something. And I was, you know, we, we thought about this on Thursday, I think, as well, but I've been continuing to think about this. Uh, like I said, I spent a lot of time in uh, industry before the ministry, and I was constantly inundated with paperwork. I used to manage uh, hundreds of partners. And it was always paperwork. It drove me crazy. It was just like, can't we just agree? Can't I just sat with you. I had dinner with you. We talked. We talked about our families, our children, golf, whatever. You know, we talked about, we had all we shared, right? And then I can't trust you? Guess not. <laughs> Send it to legal. We're a whole army of lawyers, uh, you know, nerding through hundreds of pages for some ridiculous contract. If we just could trust each other, we wouldn't have to have all that stuff. So in a perfect world, there'd be no need for paper contracts or all the lawyering that we witness today. This, to me, it's grotesque, but whatever. Go to Numbers 30, verse 2. Numbers 30, verse 2. So I have this, I don't, I don't, not that you care, but I'm going to give it to you because you're turning. Numbers 30, verse 2. I have a real like hatred for contracts because they're insulting to me. Honest to goodness, they're insulting to me. It's like, really, man? I just told you I'd do this thing. Anyways. Numbers 30, verse 2. And it, I mean, it's, I guess it's godly thinking if you really think about it. I mean, if God says, hey, look, everybody should be a man and a woman of their word, why wouldn't a person be repulsed by this need to lawyer up? Seriously. Numbers 30, verse 2. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Any questions? If you're going to tell anybody something, then do it. Seriously, just do it. No, looking for loopholes. Looking for loopholes. That's what lawyers do. There's an abundance. Did he really say that? I don't have a snake tongue, but that was my snake tongue imitation. <laughs> Bill, stop laughing. You try it, Bill. This is tough. <laughs> Did he really say? There's an abundance of Holy Scripture that speaks to the vows we make in the presence of the Lord. For example, up here on the board, how about Psalm 37, 4 to 5? Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will do it. How about Proverbs 16, 1 to 2? I'll give you the amplified. The plans and reflections of the heart belong to man, but the wise answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of man are clean and innocent in his own eyes, and he may see nothing wrong with his actions. But the Lord weighs and examines the motives and intents of the heart and knows the truth. And then verse 3, Commit your works to the Lord, submit and trust to him, and your plans will succeed if you respond to his will and guidance. See, that's the problem. People are like, you mean all I have to do is like jump through these loops and he'll give me whatever I want? yes if they align with his will. People are like, well, that doesn't seem right. Well, you sound like a, a person who's trying to hedge a bet then. 
sounds like you're the type of person who's not even really submitting to the Lord or surrendering at all to Him. You're just a business person looking for another advantageous transaction. I've met a lot of people like that in business. I mean, hey, more power to you if it's business, but we're talking about eternal, eternally weighted things here. Not really something you want to hedge bets with, especially when the other person is God. Because you're going to lose on that transaction unless you're oriented to His will. Solomon wrote very succinctly on the topic of vows and commitment to them. Go to Ecclesiastes 5, verse 1. Ecclesiastes 5, 1. Remember, this is the guy with all the wisdom. He probably had something to say on the topic of commitment and making vows. The wisest man of his time. So maybe we should listen. I mean, it's just a suggestion. <laughs> Ecclesiastes 5.1 Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God, for God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Excuse me, earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. That's between you and the Lord. What you find in Scripture, though, is that the Scripture says you need to like maybe settle down a little bit on your spouting off at the mouth. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, I'm having an emotional upheaval here. I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. I'm going to do all these things because today I'm in a good mood. I'm feeling good. All my fleshly desires are pretty much satiated, if you would, or satisfied. And uh, I got some time for you. So let's do this thing, Lord. What, what, what does that even mean? Seriously, what does that even mean? So, let's, so let me just spout off at the mouth 19,000 vows and forms of commitment to the Lord that I really have, let's face it, if I just look at my history, have no real uh, unction or very low percentage of actually living up to said vows. So what you learn in Scripture is, why don't you just kind of calm down a little bit, settle down, choose your words wisely, Pray when you don't have wisdom. But if you're going to make a vow to the Lord or in the presence of the Lord, then pay on the vow. Because God wants you to be a man or a woman after your own word. doesn't matter what you can get away with. Uh, what's that moron on television? 1-800-something-2122. What's his name? No, the ambulance chaser guy. Levine? Rob Levine? Yeah, don't be looking at Robbie Levine over here, moron, for, for ways, you know, for loopholes. So it doesn't matter what you can prove to the courts even, because there's a Supreme Court in heaven. And that's the one that counts. So you may get away with murder. But do you th really think you got away with murder in God's eyes? For real. 
Just because society's, you know, clunky enough or inefficient enough to let you off, maybe you lie to your parents. I don't know. Maybe you rip somebody off. Maybe you don't pay your taxes and nobody ever knows. You think God doesn't know? Of course he knows. Why did it get so quiet on the last one? Tax evaders. <laughs> the things you learn in people's faces. It's like, it's like, ha ha! Time for my coffee. Again, Satan has done a great job at destroying this concept of inhumanity in general, commitment. People make vows all the time that are vapid, void of integrity. We finished on Thursday with some New Testament scripture. Let's go there. Go to Luke 9.57. Luke 9.57. I love, 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 love the Bible. Amen? It's so awesome. I'm serious. Why? Isn't it? The Bible's the bomb. For you older people, that means it's good. For you middle-aged fat. That was like my generation. P-H-A-T. For you really old people, good. <laughs> when you actually spoke proper language. <laughs> Luke 9.57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no way to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own, their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. And also another said, I will follow you, Lord. See? <laughs> you got to remember, there was a lot of emotional upheaval back in the day. That's why he said, I don't trust any of you. We'll see. I will follow you, Lord. In other words, there were a lot of disciples that peeled off eventually proving themselves not actual true disciples. But there was an awful lot of vows being made. I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. Always a disclaimer, in other words. That's the principal lesson here. But Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, to put that into context, Jesus Christ spoke plainly about lack of commitment. That's our study this morning. In other words, you're not fit for the kingdom of God if you're not committed. We'll get back to the topic of fitness in a moment. Go to James 5.11. James 5.11. Think about it. The kingdom of God is technically perfect, although it's filled with imperfect people even now. But in a perfect world, in the perfect kingdom, you could say this about heaven, when someone says, I'm going to do that, guess what they're going to do? They're going to do that thing. And when they say, I'm not going to do that, guess what? They're not going to do it. That's what perfect fitness looks like. James 5.11, We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, and that's a reference to thoughtless use of swearing with wrong motivation. I swear. I mean, come on, man. But your, your yes is to be yes, and your no, no, 
so that you may not fall under judgment. Why? Ecclesiastes 5.4 said it earlier, for God takes no delight in fools. A fool says yes and then, you know, reneges and says no. A fool says no and then turns around and says yes. That's not going to happen. Uh, that certainly doesn't happen with God. Up here on the board, again, we're just developing this principle before we even get to the apostles proper. Satan has done a great job at destroying this concept of commitment in humanity in general. People make vows all the time that are vapid, void of integrity. One last area that seems to be one of our own country's greatest failures. Okay, let me look at your faces first. See, everybody, look at everybody smiling. Yay! In a moment, I'm going to be getting daggers. You're like, can't you just lay off that thing? Listen. I'm not here to judge anybody. I'm not saying anything beyond just what is. Yeah, and there seems to be an awful lot of focus on this area lately. And it's not money. You're like, some of you are like, there's enough. I had enough of that one. Right? So one of the areas in our own country's greatest failures is an area of commitment when it comes to God-ordained institution of marriage. That thing has been completely abominated. I mean, just ripped to shreds. But here's what we know. It's an institution that was ordained by God. So therefore, God has a certain viewpoint of marriage. And you know what? What does everybody say? Did you take your what? Vows. I do. And everybody's like, See, told you. I'm, all your faces are like, oh, this is gone. I've been divorced already. <sighs> this isn't about you being condemned or you feeling guilty about your own, I don't know, issues with marriage. That's not what this lesson is about. It's about realizing the lack of commitment. You know, when, when a marriage fails like that, it's a symptom. It's a symptom. If you have that in your life, it's a past issue. It's, it's what are you going to do? We're talking about symptoms. We're talking about lack of commitment here. And this one is a huge symptom. So I stress God ordained here to emphasize the fact that marriage is a holy institution, or at least it's meant to be. And if and when we are to take our so-called marriage vows... We must consider them not just a commitment to another person, but to the Lord. It's not just a commitment to another person. It's to the Lord. Because, especially if you're a believer, the whole idea, and I don't have time to get into the doctrine of this, but Christ is the head over the body. He's the groom. We're the bride. Marriage is literally a reflection of that eternal institution. And so we're supposed to bring glory to that institution in the earthly institution of marriage. So you bet God's interested in seeing these things through. You bet God has a um, viewpoint on the topic or the institution that he has ordained to reflect a much more greater one, or a, a greater, much greater one. You bet he has uh, something to say on that thing. So 
If and when we are to take our so-called marriage vows, we must consider them not just a commitment to another person, but to the Lord. And I think a lot of people that have, um, I, don't, I guess I'll use the word failed in this area, um, if they weren't so hyper-focused on the other person, their marriage probably would have lasted. They would have said, this is for you, Lord. This guy is such a jackass. And he's like, I know. And you married him anyways. But I didn't know. Well, you should have waited then. Maybe you shouldn't have had sex before marriage. Maybe you shouldn't have got all lustful. And then, you know, oh, this is so great. I just got to get married. I tried to tell you. I told you to stop. I gave you the Bible to warn you, but you didn't want it. You wanted to run off and do your own thing. Ah, oh, my church smirch. Bible smirch. I'll get, it, I'll get it when I'm like 900 years old and just ready to croak and I'll just hedge my bet then. Good luck with that one. These, this is a real commitment to the Lord. And I would argue, not, I mean biblically, that the commitment, before you say I do in front of some altar, there should be an I do with the Lord. I do accept the responsibility, the notion, the institution of marriage. I do to you, Lord, first, because I want to bring glory to you. When's the last time that, besides this church and maybe a few others, when's the last time that was taught at a marriage ceremony? No, it's usually like, throw the rice. Get the limo and the tux. Nobody's saying anything to the Lord. Go to Matthew 5.31. Told you, man, you should see your faces now. Let me get one of those little lapel cameras and just like snap before and after pictures. This was before I mentioned marriage. This is after, right? Uh, Matthew 5.31. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce, a reference to Old Testament. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, that would be adultery, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, uh, for it is the throne of God. Up here on the board, I'll give you a little insight. Make no oath at all. Jesus was not against all oaths, for even God makes them. In context here, he was cautioning people not to, to not make flippant oaths, for in many cases they were used to manipulate and deceive others. The Jews were notable for this. I mean, I hate to be totally crass and, you know, goofy, or maybe it'll loosen up a little bit. I mean, how often we heard the story, oh man, if I just want, you know, if I want to get some sex, I got to marry her. So the idiot marries her. And then six months later, like, man, I can't stand you. Yeah, because you got married for the wrong reasons. You got married so you could get some sex out of the girl. What's the heck's wrong with people? I'm serious. What's wrong with people? You can answer. <laughs> Say everything. I don't know. Everything, anything. It's ridiculous. We're unbelievable. The stuff we do to each other. Oh, baby, I love you. That's not enough. I want to, I, I, I'm not, you know, you're not touching this body until we're married. Oh, man, I got to marry her? Okay, I'll marry her. Because God knows, you know, 
that this person's like, I'll just divorce them after. Because that's a joke. Or I'll get an annulled. That one's the quick one. And you'll get, uh, you know, uh, Robbie Levine over there. Oh, you just annul it. Here's, here's the little loophole in the law. You do this. It's going to cost you 5000 you know, 1000 bucks. We'll get it done, like, tomorrow, okay? Yay! Was it worth it? I don't know. It sounds like you hired a prostitute. Oh, Sunday morning. Stop it, Pastor Ed. You see, this is what happens when you veer off God's plan. There is, it's wide open, isn't it? It's just the thing. People come to you, hey, what do you think about this? Should I, like, divorce my... Listen, it's not even in the Bible. This is why you want wisdom. Gradation, good and evil, discernment, remember? I don't know what the, all the answers are, but you know what's right and wrong if you're actually in the Word of God. You know what's right and wrong, especially on the topic of something as uh, holy as marriage. Make no oath at all. Again, Jesus was not against all oaths, for even God makes them in context. He was cautioning people not to make flippant oaths, for in many cases they were used to manipulate and deceive others. The Jews were notable for this. They would oath, you know, say this or that. And he's like, stop it already. You guys make oaths for everything. But you're doing it by this name, that name, and none of you have the heart for it. So cut it out. Verse 35. Or by the earth, for that is a footstool of his feet. Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair black or white or black. And I love how simply he makes his point. He says, ready? Verse 37. But let your statements be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond this, these is of evil. Just be a man of your own word. Be a woman of your word. In other words, commit. If you say, if you're going to make a vow, then guess what? Consider it an absolute commitment that was sown in the presence of God. If you're not willing to take that responsibility on, then shut your mouth. Say, I'll think about it, or I'm unsure. I don't know, anything's better than making some ridiculous vow to some other person. Again, what are we developing? Commitment. Satan has done a great job at destroying this concept of huma in humanity in general. People make vows all the time that are vapid, void of integrity. Options. What about options? If you think you have options, it's really easy. If you know that if, you, if you've lawyered up and you've given yourself little disclaimers and fine print that say, I got an out no matter what happens, then the, you might as well not even, I mean, what good is that thing other than to try to manipulate another person? What good is a contract, in other words, that lets you out of every aspect of your responsibility to it other than to manipulate another human being? Am I being silly? I don't think so. That's how lawyering works. Isn't it disgusting? It's grotesque. It's foul. It's disgusting. Just tell me if you want to do this thing or if this is real. Yes or no? That's what the Lord says. Yes, yes. Yes means yes. No means no. Enough with the contracts. Enough with the loopholes. Enough with the lawyering. So that's our refresher course on commitment. Hope you enjoyed it. If you people weren't so sick, I wouldn't have to teach so harsh. You know, every time I'm like, come on, Lord, we have like a fun Sunday. You know, I can do like, nope, they're sick. I know. I'm sick too, so I'm not judging. Trust me, I'm only up this high so you can see me. I really don't think I'm, please don't ever think that. I mean, the vast majority of things I teach, I've gone through. I've failed a bazillion times. I still fail, so... You know, 
Obviously, there's much more to say about commitment in the Bible, but suffice to say, up here on the board, true commitment puts the Lord as top priority. Allah, Romans 12.1 says, present your whole body a living sacrifice. That's your service of worship, your form of service of worship to the Lord and first fruits. If you're convinced that something is from the Lord, then commit to it wholeheartedly. If you're not convinced of the prior, then you shouldn't be doing whatever it is in the first place. That sounds, because God doesn't want you to not be a person or man or woman of, of your word. That's why. Don't make promises you can't keep, that you haven't thought through. If you don't have the faith and therefore the discernment, then don't open your mouth. But it's good for me. Yeah, it's good for you, but maybe it's going to cause a ripple effect in everybody else's life around you. Maybe you need to get eyes off of yourself for a little while and stop making so many promises to people that you know, you know when you're making them, you're going to break them. Cut it out. That's what the Lord says. So if you're convinced that something is from the Lord, then commit to it wholeheartedly. If you're not convinced of the prior, then you shouldn't be doing whatever it is in the first place. And that's how, my friends, this all fits into our lessons. I think we're pretty much out of time here. Uh, we'll continue on Tuesday with a review, but this is um, why we're studying this. Um, these are the things that the apostles lacked. Understanding, humility, faith, and now we've seen commitment. None of us have perfect commitment. Every one of you laughed this morning, I think, up until that one point, and it was like, you know. But every one of you laugh because you know that it's true. You know that we don't have perfect commitment. You know that we're foul. You know that we, we're, we're even just beyond like stupid foul. We're manipulative. We're, we're calculating. Everybody's like, I'm not. I'm just dumb. Well, good for you. We're, we premeditate. Fair enough? Why? Because we want, our fleshly desire is to have what we want, regardless of whether or not we break our commitment to others and mostly to the Lord. So as we continue to see, uh, the apostles made promises that they broke. Uh, most of you are probably thinking of Peter. But the whole idea of all these lessons is to relate to them personally. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the privilege of studying your word here this morning. Thank you so much for always being so real and upfront with us that it's inescapable, the things that we are, how imperfect we still are in our living. Father, we're just so encouraged by your faithfulness as it is renewed every morning, that each day is a new day, and that as far as, it's, as you're concerned, you want us to live each day, one day at a time not living in condemnation from things yesterday, and certainly not living in fear of something that doesn't exist yet, that is tomorrow. Father, thank you for the opportunity also to see some of your own baptized this afternoon. Thank you for giving us the privilege of standing beside them and encouraging them and rejoicing in their salvation. For this is the first thing that brings glory to to you in time in their lives. We just ask for a traveling mercies beyond that. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.